to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So, now that we have the prolegomena out of the way, uh, we can start our history of Old Testament scholars. I am breaking the history up into sections. So this first period spans from about 1500 to about 1800. And I am calling it the rise of the historical critical method. And this week, we start with the first of these early modern scholars uh, known as Hugo de Groot, also known as Grotius. You'll notice uh, in the coming weeks that many of these early writers have Latin names that they go by as well as their native name, Grotius being Latin. That is because up until the early 1900s, it was extremely common for people to write in Latin, also speak it. Part of this is that it is super easy to communicate with people from different backgrounds. Instead of going to an academic conference and having to know German, French, English, and Italian, everyone just speaks Latin together. No matter what your native language is, all of the academic literature is published in one language, Latin. There's something really logical about that, but it is no longer the state of the world. Anyhow, my own personal feelings aside, um, I will be referring to these early scholars by their Latin names as well as their given names, but I just wanted to give a brief background on why you will hear me refer to these people by two different names. So, Hugo de Groot was born in Delft, Holland, Netherlands, current Netherlands, in 1583. There are some Dutch names in here. I am not a fluent Dutch speaker, so please forgive my pronunciation. Anyhow, he was born in 1583. His father, Grotius's father, was a curator at Leiden University which at the time was a newly founded school. It is very big in Old Testament and biblical studies at this point. And so Grotius showed his genius early on. He apparently was writing Latin elegies, which are morning poems, M-O-U-R morning, not the wake up time. But he was writing Latin elegies at eight years old. And by the time he was 11, he was a student at Leiden, which at the time would have been around high school level. College systems have changed since the 1500s. Anyways, 
So he was at Leiden. His skills with Greek, Latin, and multiple other languages, as well as humanist philosophy, won him accolades among the Dutch elite, who he also had a connection with because of his family. So in 1598, when Grotius was 15, Jan van Oldenbarnevelt, again, pardon my Dutch, invited him on a trip to France to meet with King Henry IV. Yes, I realize it is Henri if we are speaking French, but I'm doing this in English. So King Henry IV. And the reason for this trip to France is that there was an envoy seeking to gain support for independence from Spain. A side note, if you do not know who Jan van Oldenbarnevelt is, and you actually enjoy European political history, I would encourage you to look him up. He has a storied life in Dutch politics. Anyhow, Grotius, being 15 and in France, impressed King Henry IV of France so much that he actually called him the Miracle of Holland. While Grotius was in France, he also got a law degree from the University of Orléans. It is unclear whether he actually went to the school and earned it, or if he just bought it from the university. Yes, you could just purchase degrees, and it would be so much easier for my life if that were still the case. Well, Grotius did return to Holland, and he moved to the Hague to open a law practice. He had many influential clientele, including the Dutch East India Company, but apparently hated the practice, according to letters that have survived. In 1607, he was Attorney General of Holland, Zealand, and West Friesland, and shuttered his law practice. He then got married to Maria van Rijgersbergen, keeping in mind he was only 25 when he was made Attorney General, and they eventually had seven kids. In 1613, he was appointed pensionary. For those of us who are Americans, pensionary is an office that's roughly equivalent to a state governor. A few years later, Grotius Oldenbarnevelt, again, he had a very storied history, Grotius Oldenbarnevelt and a number of others were part of a religious dispute with Orthodox Calvinists. Grotius was a reformer called Remonstrance and argued with a group of people led by a man named Maurice, who were called the Contra Remonstrance. They were very creative with their naming. So Grotius was actually imprisoned in a coup led by Maurice. On the 29th of August in 1618, Maurice staged the coup, overthrew the state's general, which was the government, consolidating his grip on power. Maurice tried to eliminate the remonstrance and their supporters in the government. So Olden Barnevelt was executed, 
and Grotius himself was sentenced to life in prison. Grotius did a lot of writing at this time. All he's doing is sitting in the prison cell. You have time to write. But he didn't stay for long. Remember that Maurice staged the coup in August of 1618. Well, in March of 1621, Grotius's wife, Maria, shipped a trunk to him, and Grotius escaped prison by having the trunk carried out, claiming that it contained a ton of books. It was Grotius that it contained. As someone who's been a book hoarder in my past, I can believe that a trunk full of books would weigh as much as a person, but it is incredulous that they didn't notice Grotius happened to be gone around the same time the trunk was being taken out. Anyhow, it worked. Grotius fled to Antwerp after his escape and then went to Paris, where his family eventually joined him. In France, he received an annual pension wrote some of his more famous works, and then he went back to Amsterdam in 1631, 10 years later, to practice law and was actually offered the governorship of the Dutch East India Company. However, by the next year, he had to flee the country because the government was after him yet again. This time he went to Hamburg, Germany. In 1634, which is to say two years later, Sweden made Grotius their ambassador to France, so he again moved to Paris. He held this position for 10 years. And while he was in France, he started writing on Christian theology again. So previously, he was writing on Christian theology in the Netherlands, trying to unite Protestant Calvinist groups, but this time he was trying to bring together Protestant factions and Protestant and Catholic groups. If you know much about the religious background of France, they were a very heavily Roman Catholic state. As well, if you're familiar with the church today, you might have guessed that his attempts to unite Protestantism and Catholicism were not widely successful. Anyways, it was an attempt, and he was at least trying to make some peace. But during that time, he was also doing many things with the state, putting through a significant amount of legislature and ties between Sweden and France. So in 1645, Grotius was recalled to Stockholm, Sweden. But on his way back, his ship wrecked and he barely survived. It was winter at the time. He spent only a few months there. I would only spend a few months in Sweden in the winter as well, before deciding to go back to Germany. The weather was bad and it actually took eight days to cross the strait from Sweden to Germany. He died in Germany that same year, in August of 1645, at 62 years old. His last words, apparently, were, quote, by attempting many things, I have accomplished nothing, end quote. 
though it's probably apocryphal, often repeated, but probably apocryphal, it is an interesting ending to an interesting life. Before we get into his actual Old Testament work, let's take a quick break. looked at the life, extremely wild life, of Hugo de Groot, and now we get to the fun part, his Old Testament work. Now, as I have said previously, this is the rise of the historical critical method, and Grotius is actually before the full-fledged critical methodology really springs up. So, you will see that he has some critical views, but they're not as methodological nor as text-driven as some of the later authors. He is living and writing at a time when literary methods and skepticism are just starting to take hold. So you hear some free thinking, but Dawn is just breaking on the biblical critical studies. Because Grotius is a little before the big shift in Old Testament critical studies, and because he was more of a humanist philosopher than a biblical critic, much of his work is about fundamental concepts of God, specifically law, and scripture. So I'm going to start out with the pre-critical things that Grotius held to before I go into some of his more critical and innovative ideas. So an example of the pre-critical thought is in Grotius's book, The Truth of the Christian Religion. It was written in Latin, but if you're like me, you'll probably want to read it in English. Way easier. So that's the English title. Anyhow, in The Truth of the Christian Religion, Grotius claims that Jews have continued to exist for generations despite oppression because they can all trace their lineage back to the time of Moses. He believes this is the only credible way to explain their existence. He didn't catch that. Let me say it a different way. Moses received the law the Old Testament law, the Torah, directly from God. And all of the Jewish people alive today follow the law because of the direct 
ancestry back to the Exodus and Moses. Grotius also argues the reverse. In other words, it is not credible to believe that Jewish people would continue to exist in spite of oppression and continue to follow the law and practice circumcision if Moses did not receive the law by God's divine hand. The logic of this seems strained for scholars today and probably even for most churchgoers. Remember that I stated in the last episode, many scholars doubt that Moses even existed. And many others claim that if he did exist, he probably did not write the first five books of the Bible, at least not as we have them today. And he might not have done all or any of the things that are attributed to him. But here, Grotius is showing that he is a child of his times. He just assumes Moses is real and springs from that to claiming that the miracles performed by Moses are the reason for the survival of Judaism today. I'm not arguing that that's true. That's just the way that he reasoned at the time. Another argument by Grotius that will help to show his age is that he believes Moses humbly passed on rule to others and did not try to advance his own agenda. If you remember the critical theories from last week, you will know that this self-effacing, nonpartisan view is not common anymore. Most scholars see tons of rhetoric in the books of Moses. There are books, modern books, on the politics of Moses, showing how he used fear tactics and public shaming to keep people in line, as well as consolidate power through miracles or stage magic if you're a skeptic. The point is that Grotius assumes the humility and deference of Moses as described in the text, whereas later scholars claim Moses can be seen clearly advancing his own agenda and telling his own version of the narrative throughout the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, all of this sounds like I am just brushing aside Grotius, right? He just took the Old Testament at face value and recycled what everyone already believed. His conclusions are orthodox. You know, the humble Moses, the prophet is real, miracles are real, and his argument that brings us to these orthodox conclusions may be interesting, but uh, probably is pretty wrong. So what that Judaism survived today? That doesn't prove much. And Deuteronomy, claiming that Moses is humble, doesn't prove that he didn't have an axe to grind, especially if Moses is the guy writing that he himself is humble. But if you already assume these to be true, these arguments aren't that far-fetched. If you assume Moses to be the author, and you assume that the text is 
speaking only the most straightforward truth about Moses, then Moses is the humble leader who doesn't want to be a leader. Moses is the one without any political narrative, so to speak. Moses performed miracles, and all of the Jews today can trace their history back to Moses, or the time of Moses. But, he did some other innovative things. These early ideas of his are not remarkable in terms of pushing scholarship forwards. But I am not a Grotius hater. I am going to speak after another short break about a few thoughts that he had that really set the stage for scholars after him. But first, let's take a break. said earlier, Grotius used two methods that became very popular later and are the springboard that later scholars used to develop the newer Old Testament methods. So the first method is that he used his knowledge of language and global cultures to present comparative arguments. He was not the first to do this, but definitely was pushing this method forward. His second method is that he used moral philosophy to analyze the Old Testament and distinguish between natural moral law and God's divine law. So that first part. Grotius engages in many texts from Greece. He was a Greek linguist, remember. Grotius engages many texts from Greece and also traditions from cultures around the world to prove the historicity, in other words, the historical truth, of the Old Testament. Many of his arguments would not hold in scholarship today, like the name Adam being found in Brahmanic India, or a 6,000-year-old earth traditions in Thailand. These connections are thin, but it is important that Grotius tries to prove the historicity of Moses with other historical sources. He cites Greek authors and Egyptian historians talking about the ancient world 
to try and connect Moses and Adam to concrete history. This is still a common method. If multiple sources attest to an event, then it is more likely to be true. So the name Adam, A-D-A-M, Adam, in two languages might not convince any of us that Adam, the man God created in Eden, existed. But if we could pinpoint that Sanskrit had a tradition of a man named Adam in a garden called Eden before contact with Europeans or Jews, that might be a stronger argument. Stronger still would be pre-European contact Japan or the Americas with that same tradition. I want to give you a less far-reaching example. So the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament was a prophet. The book of Jeremiah records the destruction of the kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians. Jeremiah claims that the last three cities to fall to the Babylonians were Jerusalem, Lachish, and Hezekah. Remember that. Jerusalem, Lachish, and Hezekah were the last three to fall to the Babylonians when they came and invaded what is modern-day Israel. In the mid-1800s, that is, Anno Domini, the recently the mid-1800s, the Lahish reliefs were found. You're going, what are the Lahish reliefs? What those are, are huge murals carved into the stone wall of King Sennacherib's palace. If you haven't seen it, pause this podcast, Google Lahish Relief. That is L-A-C-H-I-S-H. Lahish Relief. It is super cool looking. Amazing. Anyhow, these reliefs were found in Nineveh in modern Iraq. Sennacherib was a king of Babylon. Well, these reliefs show the fall of Lahish to Sennacherib, the king of Babylon. It seems to corroborate the story that Lahish fell to Babylon by Jeremiah, right? It is unlikely that a Jewish fairy tale would make it onto the carved wall art of a Babylonian palace. In addition, the Lahish letters were found in an archaeological dig at Lahish in the early 1900s. So these were actually letters inscribed on broken pieces of pottery. They're called ostraca. And one of these letters says in Paleo-Hebrew, I cannot see the signal fires of Azekah. Other letters are mentioning the destruction of the rest of the countryside. This is yet another corroboration with the biblical story of destruction. And even more, a connection 
when Jeremiah's claim that the last three cities were Lachish, Ezekah, and Jerusalem. Because the letter in Lachish is looking, but not seeing, the signal fires of Ezekah. I could do an entire podcast on cool archaeological discoveries and the Bible because I love it. I actually have a master's degree in Near Eastern archaeology. I love it that much. But that's not what this is about. Let me go back. My point is, this independent corroboration with Old Testament history is very important today. And Grotius was doing a very early version of this. Much of his comparison is through anecdotes or broad similarities. Like another one is having a seven-day week to show that uh, God instituted this seven-day week. But it is important to note that he is trying to get independent verification of Old Testament history. Even while he is trying to prove that the Old Testament text is reliable and unaltered, he cites outside sources. Now, it is suspect that he cites Greek and Jewish sources who lived at least several hundred years later than the Old Testament events. And honestly, probably had their own reasons to corroborate the Old Testament, especially the Jewish authors. But the point is, he is trying to show that independent writers attest to the veracity of the history. Whether he does this well or not, you can decide. The second push in scholarship that Grotius made and really this is his larger influence, is his moral philosophy. Grotius believed, as was common during his era, that humans have innate tendencies toward morality. This is what makes people different from animals. We make moral decisions, even from childhood, like being good to other people, being generous, working together. We have moral value judgments. If you are a skeptic, you will say we may have a moral compass, but most ignore it. I agree with you, but we're far removed from Grotius's time. In his time, people tended to think that the world was on an upward progression. People are innately good, and their human intellect makes them special and above the animals. We are the moral thinking people who are enlightening the world. I don't want to discuss all of the problems with this theory. I don't want to talk about the inherent bigotry in it, nor the disconnect between this rosy picture of human moral intellect and the colonialism that Europe was involved in at the time. I know. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty, and every generation has their blind spots. The point I'm making is just that universal, natural law was a common thought. 
and everyone was supposed to have these universal morals within them at birth. That's why it's natural. You're born you are born knowing what is right and what is wrong. Just go with me for a minute. So now, with that basis, I want to start with a quote from Grotius explaining how natural law and the Old Testament law work. As Grotius states, quote, there are writers who allege the Old Testament as a proof of the law of nature, but undoubtedly without sufficient reason. For many parts of that law proceed from the free will of God, which, however, is never at variance with the true law of nature. And so far an argument may rightly be drawn from it, provided we distinguish accurately the command and will of God, which God sometimes executes by means of men and the rights of men towards one another. End quote. So what is Grotius saying here? He is claiming that some people have called the Old Testament laws the same thing as natural law. In other words, if you want to know what those morals you are born with look like, read the Old Testament laws. There they are, at least in part. However, Grotius is disagreeing with this claim. He is saying there is no conflict between natural law and the Old Testament law. However, they are not a one-to-one correlation. The Old Testament is the will of God that goes beyond the natural law, or perhaps in directions that the natural law doesn't go. So they aren't against each other, but they are definitely different. He expounds on this. So Grotius makes another step. The two forms of law are different and cannot override one another. For example, murder is against natural law. The moral impulse of humans says murder is wrong. Yes, I'm aware. This is not always the case, and some people have either twisted moral views or just a total lack of empathy when it comes to murder. But just follow me for the sake of argument. The natural law within a person says murder is wrong. Therefore, murder can never be morally right in terms of natural law. However, the will of God can command that someone commit murder. Side note, see the Old Testament. Now, If God commands someone to commit murder, it does not become morally right. But here's the trick. 
It is no longer murder because God has commanded it. So, if God's command forces someone to transgress moral law, it changes the act of transgression by being divine command. So, it no longer transgresses moral law. God only decrees just actions because anything that God decrees automatically becomes just because God decrees it. God is righteous. God commands righteous things. All the things that God commands are righteous because God commands righteous things. The law of nature does not apply to God's will. That is the important point. The law of nature does not apply to God's will. Neither of them overrule the other. They just don't overlap. I know you might be sniffing out the questionable conclusions of that logic. But hear what he's wrestling with. Grotius is a committed Christian, but also a committed humanist. As a Christian, he is committed to the belief that God is righteous and true. As a humanist, Grotius is committed to reason and intellect as the foundation for what is right and true. That is natural law. How do you put those two together? How can God be righteous if there are stories about him commanding things that your reason says are unrighteous? Instead of saying that God's law supersedes reason and natural law, Grotius tries to hold both as equal. But you have to do some mental gymnastics to make that work. Hopefully this has piqued your interest in how reason and logic work with the Old Testament. Or perhaps even religious faith in a more general sense. This conversation is explored by many later writers. And so we'll come back to this eventually. I could give you my answer, but I don't really want to. I think that might be a little too easy. I encourage anyone troubled by this to do some research on faith and reason and the current opinions on it. It has become far more sophisticated than Grotius's viewpoint that I've presented. This is not a settled question, and it probably never will be. At this point, many scholars have huge doubts about how reasonable humans are and how reliable our senses or thoughts actually are. At the same time, there are many doubts about the reliability of the Old Testament and the coherence of its message. Grotius weighed in, but the questions still remain. Sorry for the sidetrack. Let's get back to Grotius, because he isn't done. So like I said, Grotius believed that natural law and divine law, including the Old Testament, 
are two separate things. Both are immutable and eternal, and since God is just, he could never do anything unjust. So he cannot command anything against natural law because that would be unjust. Now, Grotius's next step is that the Old Testament was given to a specific group. Israelites in that time, who are in our current time, Jews. So the laws only apply to them. None of them are bad, so Christians could follow them, and Christian rulers can make laws similar to them. However, Christians are actually only required to follow the New Testament regulations and the Old Testament laws that are given as virtues by Christ, like love, patience, humility, tithing 10%, observing the Sabbath, things like that. So the law of nature does not apply to God's will, but God's commands are also only for specific people. This somewhat helps to narrow the possibility of conflict between the two systems. For example, I can't say that the Old Testament says to stone idolaters, so it is morally right for me to pick up some stones and throw them at people. First of all, I'm not Jewish, or more precisely Israelite, so the command doesn't apply to me. Remember, as a Christian, only the virtues passed by Jesus to his disciples apply to me. Killing idolaters is neither a virtue nor a command given to Jesus' disciples. Second, divine commands take the action out of the natural moral law sphere. So the act of killing an idolater by the command of God is not quite the same as when I take it upon myself to kill someone, even if they happen to be worshiping idols. It's just not the same thing. This is where I'm going to leave us. There are so many other things that Grotius wrestled with and examples that he gave to explain his thoughts. He even wrote annotations on the Old and New Testaments, multiple pamphlets and books trying to harmonize different Christian traditions, books on law codes in general. I am just scratching the surface of his life and works. The most important thing to take away from this episode is that Grotius placed natural law on equal footing with God's decrees. He made natural law eternal and unchangeable to the point that God himself cannot change natural law, but just works outside of it. So, the Old Testament is not the basis for natural law and morality, but a completely different type of law altogether. So, 
Thank you for listening to Hugo de Groot, also known as Grotius. Next week, we will explore Louis Capel, also known as Capellus, who explored textual variants and the copying process of the Hebrew Old Testament. He made some pioneering efforts in modern text critical study methods. So please join me next time for Louis Capel. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistic scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening.